Hi, my name is Barry, and you're listening to Faith Over Dementia. Hi guys, and welcome to episode three of Faith Over Dementia. It's been a little while since um, I've posted anything. That's because, well, I've been really uh, struggling over the last uh, week or so with one thing and another. I guess I was getting a bit frustrated. Um, I've had to set up a Facebook page, and as I was doing that, hey, Facebook blocked me. They said that I needed to uh, have two-factor authentication across all my devices. Well, I only got my phone and uh, my laptop, but uh, man, that was completely confusing and I had to uh, wait or appeal against the, the block. They said I wasn't conforming to some of their policies or whatever. I don't know. But uh, eventually I got it uh, sorted. Then it was a question of of trying to set up the Faith Over Dementia uh, Facebook page and and figure out how I put links on that to the podcaster. It's still a work in progress. But if you want to go over and find me on Facebook, that's uh, Faith Over Dementia. And, uh, hey, maybe you can message me, give me some pointers, give me some ideas and things that I could perhaps uh, try. Um, One of the other things that's been going on as well, my uh, daughter's moving home, daughter and two grandchildren, so we've been um, helping her. Uh, She hasn't moved yet, but we've been moving bits and pieces and cleaning the, the house that she's currently living in at the moment so that that's been um uh, quite traumatic i think moving is one of the hard things to do in anybody's life it's it's, it can be quite stressful but there we are um it's it's going to be nice she's uh, moving out into the onto the fens in cambridgeshire which is absolutely beautiful out there uh, some of the, 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 the best the big skies you'll ever see in the, you know, the world, really. And uh, the sunsets that you get out of there. Although it can be a bit uh, uh, fierce during winter if the weather's cold or we get high winds, uh, we get dust storms, uh, you know, that sort of thing going on. But, hey, she'll love it. I lived on the Fen many, many years ago and it was actually um, really, really, really good. Um, one of the things that uh, that's happened as well was the uh, oh it was the king's coronation we sat and watched that my wife and I on the the uh, about a week ago on the Saturday and uh, well obviously we've never seen a, a coronation I've seen uh, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation on film but uh, this was uh, radically different from what I can. Uh, make out King Charles III has decided to really slim down the monarchy and make things uh, I, I think more user friendly in terms of the public you 
Constitution known, trying to get the public on side with, with a smaller monarchy and uh, trying to make them, you know, a standalone thing that they don't cost the country um, lots and lots of money. If I'm honest, I think that uh, they've got Charles, William, got an ideal opportunity now to to really be ambassadors for this country and sell the country and maybe we can recover you know some of the economic situation that we find ourselves in at the moment uh, through that so that was a really really good morning watching that we we didn't go down to the town town the local town were holding celebrations in there the the, the, the weather held off it was quite nice um, so that's what, what we've done that we uh, today we moved some more stuff over to my daughter's house and we uh, decided to go into to the local town we had a cup of coffee we took the dog with us that was really really nice uh, but in between that we have had some some really bad weather so um what else did I do? I watched the first round of the uh, Speedway Grand Prix, the World Speedway Grand Prix from Croatia. That was quite exciting. This Saturday we've got the the round two. I think that's from, from Poland. Uh, Bartosz Szmarslik, I think his name is pronounced. He's a, a Polish rider. He won the first Grand Prix. Three Brits were in the, the final. Um, which shows a good, exciting racing it, it absolutely tipped it down with rain before the meeting and the track was so wet it looked very uh, sandy as well it was almost like a sand sand track that's one of the things i used to do was some sand track racing in my youth and that was quite uh, exciting they're bigger tracks but this wasn't a big track this was a uh, looked like a you know a standard size speedway track so but really exciting uh, so i'm hopeful for um, some of the other Brits, I think we've got uh, um, Ty Woofenden and, um, um, uh, oh, do you know what, their names are completely gone. This is my disease for you. Um, the names just go, faces just go. I was out the other day in one of our local towns and somebody stopped speaking to me. I hadn't got a clue who they were and I didn't like to ask. So, hey, it is what it is, you know, I laugh about it. Uh, what else has happened? Well, I had a bit of, bit of nice, something nice happened to me. I uh, inherited a brand new electric scooter. It's like, well, it wasn't brand new, it had been used, but uh, um, I had to clean it up, and I think somebody had left it out in the rain, and the, uh, the disc brake was a bit rusty, but hey, that's no trouble. Bikes and were my thing, so I just uh, cleaned it up, readjusted the brakes, got rid of all the rust, and charged it up and went airing up the road earlier today. Uh, yeah, my wife was a bit worried about the wisdom of me using this, but hey, I, lo I love I love things like that, so we'll we'll give it a go for a while and see what happens. I don't think we they're actually legal in this country, but never mind. Um, what they're going to do, arrest me? Yeah, don't think so. So, um, I haven't been um, up too much on studying the past 
few weeks. Um, I'm, I'm still reading my book. I'm into to day six. Uh, it's the last, called the book's called The Last Week, and it looks at the, the last week um, of Jesus's life. Uh, I started it as, as a, um, a Lent kind of devotional thing. And I was hoping to get through it by Easter, but I'm woefully behind. But I am enjoying it. Like I say, I have to keep going back over and and reading bits. Um, so, um, but once I've, I've finished the book, I'll try and give a little bit of a, a review uh, on it. Um, I'm in two minds about it at the moment, but we'll 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 see. This weekend we've got the uh, Eurovision Song Contest um, from Liverpool. Really looking forward to that. Um, we usually get together with the family and have a, a few drinks and a few picks and uh, we all pick who we think is going to win. It's, uh, we've done it for years. It's, it's just one of those things that... Uh, I mean, in its, uh, um, you know, from about the 70s and 80s and through the 90s, you would always get the bonkers acts and, and some really crazy things, uh, crazy bands playing, you know, and that's half the fun of it, you know, it's not it's not uh, serious. I, I think today it's a bit more serious, um, and I think the quality has really, really gone up, so that's something we're really looking forward to uh, this weekend. Don't quite know how I'm going to work all of this, because it's also the second round, have the Speedway Grand Prix, so uh, um, I guess I'll have to record the Speedway, won't I? I'll lose out to everybody else, but that's okay. So I was hoping to have uh, a little something prepared to uh, read and chat about on um, Genesis 1, just some thoughts um, on the first chapter, um, but I haven't actually got round to finishing that yet, so that will probably come up in my next episode. Uh, but for the time being, um, I'm going to play you one of my favourite lectures, a lecture uh, by N.T. Wright. It's called Resurrection and the Renewal of Creation. I hope you enjoy. Thank you, Mark, very much for that uh, extraordinary welcome. And thanks to Mark and his family and his colleagues. And thanks to Todd Still and all the good folks from Truett as well. And it's a great privilege to be able to do this lecture uh, to celebrate this new venture which is going forward and I've been delighted to hear about it as it's been mooted and now the reality is upon us. And uh, you will appreciate, I normally start a lecture with something a bit funny, humorous, whatever. You've just had that bit already so I can pass on that. <coughs> and uh, yeah, my theme is resurrection and the renewal of creation. A nice little Christian theme, you'd have thought. I attended a funeral not long ago. It's actually very poignant for me because it was a godson of mine, uh, a bright young man with a lovely family, cruelly struck down with cancer in his mid-30s. And the funeral set me thinking 
about whether the Western Church had really got it right. It was a wonderful service in many ways. It was in Cambridge in England where the family lived. There was vibrant singing. It was a big church and it was packed. Lots of people knew this splendid young man. Uh, there was wise and consoling teaching, not least a brave and funny and poignant tribute from the young widow herself. That took some doing. And there were hundreds of people there from many different walks of life because this young man, my beloved godson, his life had touched many, many people. And it was in all sorts of ways a deeply Christian funeral. And I was glad and proud to be there. But there was one note missing. Resurrection. The word resurrection itself came in the liturgy right at the start because in the Anglican church, one of the things you do is there are sentences from Scripture which you read as the coffin is being brought into the church. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. Those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live, and so on. It's actually a very moving moment. And that same sentence was repeated an hour and some later near the end of the service with no explanation. But the whole of the rest of the service could have been summarized in the following passage which I take from a well-known first century writer. Quote, All of us are sojourners here and strangers and exiles. The soul is an exile and a wanderer which has left heaven for earth and life on earth as on an island, buffeted by the seas, imprisoned within the body like an oyster in its shell. End of quote. And the writer, the same writer, goes on to speak of those like Socrates who were happy to depart this life for the heaven from which they had come. Many of the hymns and prayers and readings at the funeral expressed something like this. Our late friend, my godson, had gone home at last. Nobody seemed to notice that they were expressing not first century Christian faith, but first century Platonism. That quotation came from one of the great philosophers and essayists of the late first century, Plutarch, a pagan priest at the shrine at Delphi, a much-traveled and widely read man of letters. It is astonishing to me that so many people in today's Western church would recognize his views as their own without realizing for a moment just how different they are from what all the early Christians believed. You see the same problem from another angle if you consider the way that Christians talk about and celebrate Easter Day. We in the Western churches, again, maybe not in your traditions, but in many that I'm familiar with, we are good at commemorating Lent. Oh, 40 days, we've got to batten down the hatches and maybe give something up and be a bit solemn and so on. And in my tradition, we know how to keep Palm Sunday we go into Holy Week, we journey with Jesus through Maundy Thursday and all the way to the foot of the cross on Good Friday itself. And then, a couple of days later, we have glorious Easter morning celebrations, but that's about it. We all go off on holiday. And many of the sermons, certainly in my tradition, but many of the sermons you will hear on Easter Day are not about resurrection, but about our hope of going to heaven and having life after death with Jesus. And we don't keep a 40-day feast to match the 40-day fast of Lent. I think we should. <laughs> Is it any wonder that people in the wider world don't realize that we Christians are supposed to be about joy, you know, love, joy, peace, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Come on. 
How'd you do that? Well, we maybe need to kickstart stuff. I'll come back to that. Because Easter Day is not simply the happy ending after the sad and dark story of Holy Week. Easter is the start of something. It isn't the ending. The four Gospels, I mean, they're very interesting literary creations. The four Gospels tell the story of Easter Day as the beginning of something. Because it comes at the end of their books, we think that it's rounding off the story. That's it. End of conversation. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's gone to heaven. Uh, That's it. No, the way they tell the story has a sort of dot, dot, dot to it that something new has happened. And where's it going? We have thus, in effect, fitted Jesus and even his resurrection into the story that our Western churches have had all along of the present world as the preparation for the various options of life after death in the traditional scheme, heaven or hell, and in the case of traditional Catholic teaching for purgatory. Just in case there's anyone who's interested in there, let me add in square brackets a rather curious little note here because people, if you know anything about theology, you know that medieval Catholicism was big on purgatory, that if you're going to end up in heaven, you're going to have to be cleaned up and sorted out and possibly punished a bit as well for all the things that you've gone on doing. And so you go through a long, very unpleasant thing called purgatory before finally you're allowed into heaven. That's a simple way of looking at how it works. Dante, in his famous poem, you have the three parts, the paradise, the purgatory, and, of course, the hell. But many Catholic theologians today have radically revised that. Karl Rahner and Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, have radically modified purgatory and have spoken of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, a moment of burning, a fire through which all that remains sinful in us will be burned up in a moment. Or they have said, well, after death, we will all be given a glimpse of the way in which the multiple evils that we have done have brought evil into the world and have harmed other people. And that will be a terrible moment through which we have to pass to take responsibility for who we are. The point is not to debate those ideas. The point is that those are two leading 20th century Catholic, 21st century Catholic theologians who have rejected the traditional idea of a chronological period of punishment and purgation going on. Unfortunately, their ideas have not spread yet through the rest of the Roman church. But that's the square brackets. But I think that part of our problem in the Western churches has been that in the 16th century, the reformers had the urgent need to reject purgatory, to say, no, we don't believe in that. Jesus has died for our sins. We do not need to be punished for them again. And the death itself finishes off everything in us that is still not as it should be. That's the, the normal Reformation line. But the reformers and their successors, having done that, few, kept the traditional heaven and hell scheme from Dante, from uh, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, etc. As Karl Barth said, the reformers never really sorted out their eschatology. I don't actually think Barth himself did either. And perhaps we can do better. My point is this. In the New Testament we have a very different picture. We don't find a life after death in heaven. We find what I've called 
in a very simple phrase, but people find it hard to get hold of, life after life after death. A newly embodied life in a newly reconstituted creation. First you die, then there is whatever you're going to call it, life after death, and then there is new creation, and with it, bodily resurrection. Life after, life after death. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection not as the happy ending after the crucifixion, though to be sure, at a trivial level it functions like that, but as the launching of nothing less than new creation itself. So what I want to do in the next little while, building on some of my earlier works and tracking with a theme from my recent Gifford lectures in Aberdeen, which, by the way, I think last time I was here, I did a single attempt at a summary in a lecture of what I was going to say in the Gifford. So thank you that I had the chance to run some ideas here before an intelligent audience, before I then put them before a British university. Um, And so I, I, I want to track some of this and to trace out how that works and apply it to some aspects of our present life and the challenges that now face us in our confused and dangerous world. And I'm not apologizing for repeating and building on some of the things that I've said in earlier books, particularly, as Mark said, surprised by hope. It's clear to me that even the, among those who've understood what I've been saying intellectually, there's still often a gap with how it works out in practice. I was saying to Mark before, we're all familiar, if you're teachers, with the student who says, while I was in class, for a moment, it all made sense. And then when I walked out the door, my brain flicked back into default mode, and I couldn't even remember quite what it was that you'd said. Okay, we go through it again, but that's what I'm doing. So resurrection in the first century, what did, what's the word mean? The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, which is literally an upstanding. And here's the key point. In the world of the first century, anastasis never referred to what we think of as life after death. Or to put it the other way around, when people talked, as they often did, about life after death, life immediately after death, or what will happen to us when we die, they never used the word anastasis. Resurrection was not something that happened to you immediately after you died. Unless, like Lazarus, three, four days later, you were brought back to life. Even in Jesus' case, though, as in Lazarus's case, there was a short period of being dead. Jesus did not get raised from the dead immediately after he died. Where is he in between? Good question. The early church worried about that. Jesus was dead and was then raised on Easter Day to new bodily life, life after, life after death. And the whole New Testament and all the great Christian teachers for centuries after that taught the same thing, that what God did for Jesus on Easter Day, he will do for all his people at the end, raising them to new bodily life, to share in the new bodily life of his new world. But as the gospel moved away from its Jewish roots and into the Greek world of people like Plutarch, this was harder and harder to cling on to. Most of the early fathers did cling on to it for some centuries. It's striking, in fact, that the New Testament isn't terribly interested in what happens to people immediately after they die. 
That, that's what we are all interested in. You go to a funeral or you preach at a funeral or you're counseling people who've been bereaved. They want to where is she now? Where is he now? It's a natural question. The New Testament doesn't give you much help. There are a few hints. Luke 23, Jesus says to the brigand on the cross next to him that he will be with him in paradise. But that's today, he says. And paradise is not uh, the ultimate destination. It is the temporary blissful dwelling while you await the ultimate destination. And for Jesus, that destination came three days later. The brigand, like all others, is still waiting. Just to make that clear, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Messiah rises as the first fruits. You know what the first fruits is? It's the sign that there's a great harvest yet to come. And at his coming, at his parousia, those who belong to him will rise as he has been raised. Paul makes no mention of any others who already share the risen life. All others come later at the parousia. Okay, Jesus tells the disciples in the upper room, John 14, a passage I've often used in counseling people who are facing death, that he is going to prepare a place for them and he will return to take them to himself. Yes, but of course, this is the same Jesus who a few chapters earlier had said that on the last day, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will be raised bodily to new life. These two fit together. Jesus will take his people to be with him for the moment. And then, when the time comes, he will give them new bodily life in his new world. This is like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. My desire is to depart and be with the Messiah, which is far better. We want to say, hang on, Paul, just stop right there. What do you mean? Where will that be? What sort of a creature will you be? Because you won't be embodied, or will you be, or how does that work? It doesn't say the New Testament has an extraordinary silence in that. And when the early Christians do refer to people who have already died but have not been raised, it's only the book of Revelation in chapter 6 and chapter 20 that speaks to them as souls. And it's clear that they don't mean that in a platonic sense. It's the souls under the altar who are saying, how long, O Lord, how long? They're waiting. The early Christian view is that we humans are whole creatures, body included. And that after death we are in that sense naked, awaiting the further clothing of the resurrection. Not heading off as a disembodied soul to a non-spatio-temporal heaven. And in that interim period... The Holy Spirit who has indwelt Christians will continue to hold their real self in the close presence of Jesus until the Spirit then gives new life to their physical bodies. This, by the way, I think, complete aside, but it's quite a curious one, this, I think, is, is part of why we humans wear clothes. We know we are made for something more than what we presently are. Isn't that interesting? There's an entire fashion industry waiting for that theology to sustain it. <laughs> now, all this is rooted in the view of resurrection which is held by many Jews, though not all, in the first century period. The Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. That's partly because resurrection is a political doctrine. 
if God is going to renew this world and you can trust him to do that, then whatever you need to do in the present, in the, in the service of the kingdom of God, even if it results in your death, that's okay because God is going to sort it out. The Sadducees of the aristocrats don't like that one little bit. I used to think when I was a kid, hearing about Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't believe the resurrection and the Pharisees did. I used to think that because the people I knew who didn't believe in the resurrection were the liberals, that that meant that the Sadducees were the liberals and the Pharisees were the conservatives. No, the Sadducees were the conservatives. Resurrection, they said, was a newfangled and dangerous doctrine. People like those funny jumped-up Pharisees, they believe that sort of thing. We need to get, I mean, you know, conservative and liberal, these, excuse me, those are hopelessly inadequate labels to do any job, actually. Um, those who have ears can hear. Um, the, <laughs> so in, in the period we're talking about, ever since the book of Daniel and then the book we call Second Maccabees, if you haven't got a Bible with an apocrypha in it, get hold of an apocrypha from somewhere and read Second Maccabees. The hints and guesses from earlier texts have become explicit under two constraints. Now these are vital if we're to understand why resurrection matters and what it means today. The two constraints, theological constraints, deep within Israel's scriptures and agonized over in the Second Temple period the two constraints are the goodness of creation on the one hand and God's commitment to justice on the other. Goodness of creation. God is the good creator and God is committed to putting things right. You see this in the stories of the Maccabean martyrs in 2 Maccabees, in the 160s BC. They are being tortured to death by the Syrian pagan king for their refusal to compromise their ancestral way of life. And they say again and again that they worship and serve the God who made heaven and earth, the creator of all. They are not worshiping a local or tribal God or one who doesn't care about the way the world is. They belong to the one who made it all in the first place. And along with creation goes justice. As the Psalms and prophets insist, Israel's God cares passionately about putting right that which is wrong in the world. It doesn't say forget the world and escape and go somewhere else. No. We in the West have often reduced this putting right to the notion of judgment in a negative sense. Seeing that in terms of punishment for misdeeds. But in the Hebrew scriptures... Psalms like 96 and 98, those glorious passages, many other places too. Judgment is a joyous thing, a cause for celebration, because it means that Israel's God is going to come back and sort out the mess. He's coming to put things right, to right wrongs, to straighten what has become crooked, to repair and rebuild what has been torn down. Justice means making things right at last, getting the original creational project back on track. So put creation and justice side by side within the present world of sorrow and suffering and sin. What do we have? Certainly not the platonic picture where the present world can go to hell while human souls or some of them anyway are allowed to escape. What use is that? That simply ignores the goodness of the original creation. 
certainly not the Epicurean or Stoic positions where the world is either going just rumbling on doing its own thing, Epicureanism, or is going round and round in a great cycle of being, Stoicism, without anything ever really changing. What use is that? That ignores the original goodness of creation and of the Creator's intention and the divine longing to put it all right at last. This is the biblical hope that the God who made the world will put it right. Now, quite obviously, that hasn't happened yet. Glance at the newspapers. Television will confirm that. That's why I reject, by the way, the idea put about by some, according to which when we die, we get, as it were, fast-tracked straight into God's ultimate future. We leap over the time in between. No, the new creation will not be a creatio ex nihilo, a creation out of nothing. God won't forget this world and make a total new one. It will be a creatio ex vetere, a creation out of the old. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage, its slavery to decay, into the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. It will be the rescue and redemption and reestablishment of the present creation. That hasn't happened yet. The resurrection of all God's people has therefore not happened either. Footnote, I'm sure somebody's scribbling right now. What about those corpses that come out of the tomb at the end of Matthew's gospel? Good question. If anyone here has got a good answer for it, I'd like to know what it is. But the biblical message is that the project has begun. In a sense, it began when God called Abraham, but that in the next 2,000 years is best seen as preparation. In a truer sense, it began when through Jesus, God overthrew the dark powers that have spoiled and corrupted his beautiful world, and particularly the beautiful lives of precious image-bearing human beings who are made to be the crown of creation, the agents through whom God would bring his beauty and justice into the world. The project happened through Jesus' kingdom work, which reached its climax on the cross. And because the power of death was defeated on the cross, that opened the way for creation to be set free from its slavery to decay, from its corruption and death, starting with Jesus' own physical body. Easter is the beginning. That's why the bodily resurrection of Jesus matters so much. Generations of liberal theologians have tried to play it down or deny it altogether as though it was just a kind of an accretion, an early superstition which we can now do without. That represents, by the way, a radical de-Judaizing as well as dehistoricizing move. And it involves undoing one or both of the pillar themes. If God is the good creator, and if at the last he will put everything right, resurrection's gonna be the result. Nobody saw Jesus' resurrection coming ahead of time, despite the fact that he'd been trying to explain it to his followers, despite the fact that when the disciples thought about it, they did see all kinds of biblical texts which had pointed that way, but which they'd never read like that before. Some of the key texts in the early church, which when they look back, they saw resurrection. God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, when you've lain down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you 
who will sit on your throne. I will be his father and he will be my son. As far as I know, no Jewish texts known to us prior to Christianity saw in that I will raise up a prediction that great David's greater son will be raised from the dead. The early Christians said, oh my goodness, look at that. It was there all along. So that is the real message of Easter morning, as is perhaps clearest in John's gospel. In John, the resurrection chapter, chapter 20, twice tells us emphatically that this was the first day of the week. He says it right at the start of the, of the chapter. It doesn't always emerge in the English translations, but the, it is that the first words of chapter 20 in John are on, on the first day of the week, very early, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And she found the tomb empty and met the risen Jesus and supposed that he was the gardener, which was the right mistake to make. This is a new genesis we've got here. First day of the week. And then John says it again in the evening, verse 19 of chapter 20. Um, On the first day of the week in the evening, where the doors were locked for fear of the Judeans, Jesus came to breathe peace and power and his own spirit upon them. John has framed these scenes within his gospel, which begins by evoking Genesis 1 itself, in such a way as to say, this is the launching of the new creation in which the divine intention for the whole creation from the beginning is at last fulfilled. And that's why in one of the greatest Christian poems of all time, and by the way, I think Christian theology started with poetry. Poetry like music enables you to say two or three things at once, Ordinary prose, you can't. You have to say A, then B, then C, and then you say, by the way, these all belong together. Poetry can do that by matching and rhyming and so on. Paul writes to the Colossians, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, in him and through him and for him all things are created and so on. Study Colossians 1, 1 to 15. It says it all, really. We will never understand the gospel unless we see it as a great narrative, the narrative which finds its way through the dark night of the long years of Israel's desolation and then bursts out with new life on Easter morning. And, of course, it doesn't end there. It only makes sense if, having been launched, the new creation is then put to work in the world. That is the primary task of the Holy Spirit. In the great creeds, we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. There's new life. And if the Holy Spirit is given, it's so that we can not only have life ourselves, but be life bringers into the world. And we can get a firm handle on what that means if we remember those two key points, creation and justice. A good world spoiled by hostile and destructive forces, but now to be remade. A world to be brought through death and out the other side into a new kind of life which death can no longer touch. And though the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can and does work in a thousand different ways of which we only hear the rustle of the passing wind, one of the primary ways the Spirit works is, of course, through the humble, prayerful servants of Jesus whose hearts have been renewed, whose minds have been enlightened by the powerful gospel so that they not only believe in Jesus' resurrection and hence in his victory over the dark powers on the cross, but that they become resurrection people, both signs and agents of the new life which will one day flood the whole creation 
and the key areas for their work will be creation and justice, beauty and justice, imitating and drawing from God the lavish creator and anticipating God's final putting right of all things. I'll come back to that. But before we can say more about this, we need to look at the biblical witness to the ultimate divine design. What will this new creation actually be? So where is the gospel narrative ultimately going? To start again, as it were, if we were to take our cue from much modern Western Christianity, whether Catholic or Protestant, whether charismatic or evangelical, whether liberal or conservative, you might well imagine that the ultimate goal would be to have a great many saved souls living in heaven with Jesus, with the Trinity, in fact. And the biblical language about ruling, that Jesus' people will somehow share his reign or his rule, is often passed over, not in all traditions. Some have really highlighted that. But this, like resurrection itself, is a non-negotiable part of the package. From Genesis 1 onwards, humans were made to rule in God's creation. To rule, of course, not bullying or brashly, but with gentle stewardship, reflecting the Creator's lavish and generous and careful love. To enable creation to be fruitful, to flourish, not to squash it or trample it or exploit it. And this is reaffirmed in Psalm 8. And it's powerfully fulfilled in the stories of Jesus in the Gospels when his mighty works speak just as much about his true humanity as they do about his divinity, though that's a subject for another day. And it's what we see particularly in the various approaches to Jesus' ascension for which we need to allow the resurrection itself to reconstruct our entire cosmology. Because with Jesus we realize that what we call heaven, God's space, And what we call earth, our space, are not a million miles apart. That's Epicureanism. That's where Western culture has been for the last three or four hundred years. We've been fooled by that. We've just drunk it in and not questioned it. No, heaven and earth are designed to overlap and interlock. They work together. They were always meant to. We humans are created for the specific purpose of standing at the threshold between the two. Summing up creation's praises before the creator and exercising responsible, delegated authority on his behalf over such bits of the world as may be entrusted to us, starting, by the way, with our own bodies. Anyway, the goal of the narrative is then summed up gloriously in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1.10, God's desire and design was to sum up in the Messiah all things in heaven and on earth. If only the churches of the Reformation had taken Ephesians instead of Galatians as their primary text. I mean, Galatians would agree with that, but it was possible to read Galatians in a way which fitted into the Western medieval soteriology. Ephesians is very clear. The point is that heaven and earth belong together. You don't have to leave one to go to the other. God wants, and in Jesus they are already together. Jesus holds them together. He is the ultimate heaven and earth person, the truly human being who is simultaneously and gloriously the living embodiment of Israel's God. And and to realize that that's not even a paradox, that was the intention all along. 
This is one of the reasons, I think, why liberal Protestant scholars haven't wanted Ephesians to be written by St. Paul. It doesn't fit the dualist paradigm that has dominated those traditions. So much the worse for those traditions. It belongs very well with the larger Pauline vision, for instance, in Galatians, where Paul speaks of new creation, the new world that has come about because God has, Galatians 1.4, rescued us from the present evil age. Because Paul picks up from his Jewish world not only the idea of heaven and earth overlapping, but of a present evil age which is going on, and of an age to come which God has long promised, which will put right everything that is wrong in the present age of sin and sorrow and sickness and death. And in the gospel, Paul believes in this second overlap as well, just as in some, quite a lot of Jewish thought, every Sabbath is a genuine anticipation of the age to come. It's God's future suddenly emerging mysteriously in the present. So in the gospel, as with Jesus' own teaching, the age to come has been launched confusingly within the present evil age. So that though the present age rumbles on and we still sin and die, the power of God's age to come has already been let loose by the Spirit in the present time. So the goal which was articulated briefly in Ephesians 1 is then spelled out much more fully in two Pauline passages and two Johannine ones. I'll just refer to them briefly. You can always go and read them and pray them through more fully. In Paul, the famous passages are Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. And the Johannine passages, John 20 and 21, I've already mentioned that, and Revelation 21 and 22, the vision of the New Jerusalem. Let me just say a word about each of those. Romans 8 is one of the glories of the Christian faith, one of the most astonishing pieces of writing. When I was Bishop of Durham, I used to interview candidates for parish jobs, and one of my standard questions was to say, if you could just take one or two chapters of the Bible to a desert island with you, what would they be? I say, to make it a little more significant, you've already got Romans 8 and John 20. <laughs> now, for our purposes, the passage which matters most in Romans 8 is verses 18 through 30. They are, of course, rooted in the earlier parts of the chapter and the whole letter. But what we note above all, I've already quoted it, is that they have to do not with the abandonment of creation, but with its rescue and renewal. God made this world, and as people often say, he didn't make junk. We have messed up this world, and there are dark forces behind that as well. It's not just human agency, but God is the righteous judge who will ultimately put it all straight. That's the great message of Romans, isn't it? The righteousness of God. God's justice, his sovereign, saving, covenantally faithful justice. God is apparently challenged beyond hope by the failure of the human race, Israel included. You know, God called humans to be his wise agents in taking forward his purposes for creation. And when humans messed up and worshipped idols, he didn't say, oh, we'll forget that then. Actually, he nearly did with Noah, but 
the point about Noah is that he didn't actually say that. And likewise, then God calls Abraham to take forward his purposes for rescuing the world. And when Abraham's people fail as well, because they were in Adam as well as the promise-bearing people, God doesn't say, as most Christian traditions have imagined, he said, oh, well, we'll forget that and do it differently. I'll just send Jesus. That's the narrative that many, many people have in their heads, Marcionite, basically. No, the central message is that God has fulfilled his purposes for Israel in Jesus, the representative Messiah. And God has thereby fulfilled his purposes for the human race, the one who was totally open to God, totally devoted to God, and was able to carry forward God's saving purposes and God's human purposes. God has come in the person of Jesus to take the force of human ruin and Israel's disaster onto himself and to carve out a way through and on to rescue and renewal. And the central message, Romans 8, is that God will do for the whole creation at last what he did for Jesus at Easter. Taking the physical reality that had been broken and smashed beyond belief and rescuing it and restoring it so that it wasn't just even in the same state as before, but was actually renewed, having gone out beyond the reach of corruption and decay altogether. That's, of course, what we we find it so difficult to get our minds around. We are used to all physical reality, up to and even including rock-hard things like diamonds being ultimately subject to decay. You can split and smash them. And human bodies, of course, far more so. For us, physical reality always seems vulnerable, destructible, corruptible. What we are promised in God's new world is a non-corruptible physicality. We are promised that for our own very bodies. Read Romans 6 and see it's very explicit. In Romans 8, we are promised it for the entire new creation. Hard to get your head around? Yeah. The only way I know is to keep reading the stories of Jesus' resurrection. And if they reduce you to wandering, grateful silence, fine. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28, there in an astonishing passage built up from multiple scriptural references, Paul unfolds the promise contained in Jesus' resurrection. As we saw, Jesus is the first fruits, and at his second coming, All his people will be raised to share his new kind of life after a time of resting and patient waiting, though Paul doesn't stress that here. And then Paul explains, the present time is the overlap, the time when the age to come has broken in while the present evil age is still going on. Why is there this overlap? Why doesn't God finish the job right away? Because, as Paul and others explain, God's rescue operation is an act of love. And God is unwilling to foreclose on the many who are presently being wooed and won by the gospel. As in the Sermon on the Mount. I've said this many, many times. I think it bears repetition. As in the Sermon on the Mount, when God wants to rescue and transform the world to establish his sovereign and saving rule over it, for which the shorthand is the kingdom of God. He doesn't send in the tanks and smash the opposition on the spot. He sends in the poor and the meek and the mourners and the hungry for justice people and the poor in heart. And the world is changed. 
That's how Jesus' present sovereignty on earth is implemented. It really is. Slaves are free. The public conscience is actually transformed. There's a long way to go, but there are real signs of hope in the real world. So Paul describes the present time then in terms of the ongoing battle in which the Messiah will implement the victory he won on the cross. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, he says. Now, two things are important here. First, this is the debate Judy Gundry and I were having very briefly this afternoon in here. The Messiah is already reigning. As in Matthew 28, Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. It has been given to him. The church has been quite content to think of Jesus possessing all authority in heaven. I think we've hardly begun to figure out what it might mean that he has all authority on earth. It means what it means in the Sermon on the Mount, actually. But the point is that the reign of Jesus is active. It's got a goal in view that hasn't yet been reached, but one day will be. And the goal in question is the utter destruction of all the enemies, which are the dark spiritual forces that destroy creation. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that can only mean the creation of a new world in which death itself has been swallowed up in victory. Now, this vision is so unlike the normal Western vision of going to heaven that perhaps it isn't surprising that it's often not even glimpsed, let alone grasped. And if you say, as many people do, that the body is cast aside and the soul goes to heaven, that is not the defeat of death. That is merely the description of death. That's, in fact, the straightforward platonic theory about what death is. It's not the Jewish or Christian theory about how death is overthrown. Beware of colluding with death. Paul says that death will be abolished. And this will mean a new creation, no longer subject to decay and corruption. So that at last, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God will be all in all. Here's how I think this works. God has made a world that is other than himself. Why would a good God do that? The answer in Scripture is that God, in the mystery of his own complex inner life, is the God of utter self-giving love. And his intention is that he will, in the end, embrace the whole creation within that love without squashing it so that it ceases to be itself, so that it ceases to be his beautiful creation, which is other than him. That's how love works. God will be both other than the world and filling it with his presence. What we presently know in the church and as individual Christians, that the Spirit dwells within us so that God is both utterly different from us and dangerously, worryingly, intimately present within us. That's God's desire and design for the whole creation. There is a world of good theology waiting to be unpacked there, but not today. Now, the vision of the new creation in the Johannine literature is even more evocative. I've already spoken of the first day in John 20, which shows that for John the Evangelist, the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. And that works out for John through those vivid scenes in which Jesus comforts Mary and dries her tears. Jesus challenges Thomas and puts an end to his doubts. Reach your hand out and put it into my hand. 
And Jesus then, 21, confronts Simon Peter and gives him forgiveness and fresh commission. All those are part of what resurrection means. And when we then turn to the revelation of John, we see this in its ultimate form. Please note, the last, despite the medieval mystery plays, which regularly, gloriously get it wrong, the last scene in the Bible is not saved souls going up to heaven somewhere in the sky. It's the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth so that the dwelling of God is with humans. It's the ultimate denial of all Gnosticism which rejects the goodness of the present order. I once saw a staged performance of Verdi's Requiem in the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden. It was beautifully done with the chorus quietly acting out what the music was saying. And in the Liberame de Morte Eterna, Save Me, O God, from Eternal Death, the choir one by one were lighting candles down at the bottom on the stage level and then slowly making their way up, still singing up, staircases either side until they were all upstairs. There were other twists to that as well, but I sat there thinking, this is brilliant theater and it's lousy theology. We have spoken so often about salvation, about God's purpose in terms of us getting to be with God, and we've forgotten that the way that Genesis and Exodus work is that the great narrative arc from Genesis 1 to Exodus 40 is about how can there be a rescued people in whose midst God can come and live. That's the story. And when John says that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away together with the sea, what he means is that the first heaven and earth are corruptible and corrupted and that the corruptible state has been done away. So there's a radical transformation in order that the reality of God's good creation will remain. And in John's apocalyptic imagery, the sea, as in much Jewish thought, is the dark untamed source of evil and chaos and John says there is no more sea because if the sea has gone in the symbolic world of what he's saying there is no chance of evil and corruption entering once more producing a second horrible cycle of sin and death needing a further redemption no there is no snake in the garden city the new creation is for keeps it's guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The point to grasp, and I've been told by many people that our Western traditions are still so strong that even if they glimpse it, they can't quite hang on to it, is that the new creation is not a matter of us being taken away to a different sort of place, but by Jesus coming back to transform the present world into the place he wants it to be and to transform us into being the people he wants us to be. And the classic text for this, much misunderstood, is Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. Paul, again drawing on the Psalms, says, we are citizens of heaven, and from heaven we await the Savior. Now, what does that mean? I've heard well-reputed theologians, including at least one who has lectured in this place, I'll have words with you about that afterwards, Mark, actually, um, <laughs> saying that the citizens of heaven thing means that like Roman citizens in Philippi, they would one day go back home to Rome. So we are citizens of heaven. This is Plutarch. It's not Paul. 
And it's not how Roman citizenship worked. The reason that Philippi was a Roman colony was precisely that Rome didn't want all those demobilized soldiers back in Rome. Rome was overcrowded and had a food shortage. They certainly didn't want those soldiers all coming back. So they made colonies there and said, you must be agents of Roman culture there in northern Greece where you live. That's how the citizen's language. We are citizens of heaven so that we can be agents of heaven's culture and colonizing here on this earth until the day when Jesus comes and, re- and, and completes that whole process and restores us, us to our glorious bodies, gives us our glorious new bodies in the process. Now, all of this points to our present life and calling in quite dramatic ways. Once we realize and celebrate the fact that Jesus is already reigning, And remember that in the Gospels, one of the things that's going on throughout is the redefinition of power. Jesus says to James and John, the rulers of this world do it one way. They bully and harry and beat people up to get their way. We're going to do it the other way. Anyone who wants to be great must be your servant. That's real power. Paul explores that in 2 Corinthians. So what does it mean to say Jesus is already ruling on earth? It means the Sermon on the Mount. It means 2 Corinthians. It means power through weakness. Because once we realize and celebrate the fact that Jesus is already reigning, we can start to learn in prayer and liturgy to celebrate his victory in new ways and to invoke it in praise and prayer, bringing genuine new signs of life, of new creation to birth in the present world. So many Western Christians have fixed their eyes on a distant and escapist heaven that though they may still sense a calling to make a difference in the present world, thank God a lot of people with that going to heaven theology still know in their bones that they're supposed to be working in the present world. They have no larger theological framework within which to understand that vocation. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus supplies exactly that. When I was Bishop of Durham, I was aware of some, (coughs) some parishes in the diocese which concentrated on saving souls and thought that any attempt to make the world a better place was social workers, social work, which we should leave to the politicians. And I was aware of other parishes which were determined to follow Jesus in feeding the hungry and looking after the poor and the weak, but then had no idea what Jesus' death and resurrection were all about. And part of my job as bishop, I think, was to interpret them to one another and to show them the larger whole within which the whole thing makes sense. For a start, we could note the way in which Ephesians follows through on that statement in the first chapter that God's plan was to sum up and unite all things in heaven and on earth in the Messiah. For Paul, that has all kinds of spin-offs for the church's life and work in the present as well as the future. The church is to model the new creation in the power of the Spirit, which means for a start... Chapter 2, Jew and Gentile coming together in the single new temple, the church in which God lives by the Spirit. That's the Exodus 40 moment. And this startling and unprecedented new reality will shock the rulers of the world. Chapter 3, they had tried for centuries to unite people under their rule. Alexander the Great tried it. Julius Caesar was trying it, etc., etc. They couldn't do it. The only person who's been able to unite totally disparate people under his rule, is Jesus. And as the church lives like that, still a major challenge for us today. It's a sign to the world that Jesus is already 
its true Lord. And then in the second half of the letter, I was talking about this this afternoon, Paul expounds the twin themes of unity and holiness. These are still massively challenging for churches and fellowships of all kinds. And I suspect it's partly because we've just given up trying that we then find resurrection being shrunk to being just an odd word for life after death or the mere happy ending after the cross. But in particular, in chapter 5, Paul sketches one of the points where unity and holiness are most striking in the Christian vision of marriage, seen as a sign and potent symbol, a sacrament no less, of the original creation now renewed in Jesus the Messiah. John hints at this too in his second chapter, The Wedding at Cana in Galilee. So those are some pointers to the Pauline vision of restored creation, the way in which the resurrection of Jesus is to work out through the Spirit in the present renewal of creation, which will always be partial, but is a genuine anticipation of the final renewal still to come. And hidden in Ephesians 3, we find that blueprint for the present renewal through social and political life, that the church in its unity and holiness is called to be the sign that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Of course, Caesar comes in many forms. In the gods that are worshipped today, as always, the gods of money and power and sex, the gods of a self-centered self-fulfillment and self-realization, major religion of our time, of course. The body of Christ as a whole, with every Christian called to play his or her part and to face our own personal battles and struggles as we do so, is to show the world and its rulers that there is a different way to be human, the way of the Sermon on the Mount, the way of following Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Thank God that the church has been doing this throughout history and still is. It never makes the news headlines, but it's going on in towns and villages near you. It's going on round the corner in the, the wrong bits of town often enough where saints and heroes and heroines are actually doing new creation in the places that need it. I worry again, though, that in many Western churches, both Catholic and Protestant, the emphasis is still on how I get to heaven with witness to the world as just an incidental afterthought, rather than on new creation being launched and now being put to work. This has obvious implications in the political sphere, which will vary widely from place to place. I did a different version of this lecture a few weeks ago for... Uh, a theological conference in Poland. Sadly, I wasn't able to go there, but I recorded it and played it to them. I was very much aware in thinking about what I was going to say to you and thinking about what I was going to say to them that two situations are very, very different and that it's up to people in their own situations to say prayerfully, Lord, please show us what new creation would mean in our own context. In countries like mine, the churches are still in theory free to live their lives and bear witness. They're doing that with mixed success. The chief opposition tends to come from the media because the media are the, uh, want to be the ones who hold up the mirror to power, who tell the powerful what they should and shouldn't be doing. And they don't like the churches trying to do it instead. And the churches have gone along for the ride. Shame on us. This will vary, but the point is that the church is to demonstrate the signs of new life, which are the genuine anticipations of the new age breaking in already. And ever since the Enlightenment, the social, cultural, political forces of the Western world 
have stolen the church's clothes. No, we're going to do healthcare. We're going to do education. You church, you used to do that. Well, we're doing it now. And in particular, we're going to run the world. We're going to do power. And we don't want you telling us about it. And the church said, that's all right. We will teach people how to say their prayers and go to heaven. And please, will you just run the world? No. Excuse me. And in particular, the fact that God has renewed creation in Jesus and intends to renew it from top to bottom in the end should have immediate implications for our care of the planet. If someone gave you a wonderful painting to decorate your home, it wouldn't be very respectful, respectful if you used it as a dartboard or a chalkboard for the kids to draw on. And if someone said, oh, that didn't matter because the original artist will come one day and he'll amend it and clean it all up, you might think that was missing the point. But that's how we've often treated God's good creation. The more we know about how our planet works, the more we see just how badly we, its present caretakers, have been looking after it. There are, of course, many faddish and silly solutions there. We all know that, I expect just as there are in every walk of life. But that doesn't mean that the church can go slow on its responsibilities to understand our human vocation as stewards of creation and to lead the way in responsible living ourselves and in encouraging and lobbying for policies which will bring a measure of God's order to his wonderful but wounded world. Now, the mysterious heart of all this is the church's life of prayer and sacrament. If we start with a view of God and the world in which they're miles apart from each other, then prayer becomes shouting up into the sky. Sacrament becomes a strange ritual with possible benefit as a visual aid to faith, but not much more. But we shouldn't start with that view. If we begin with the resurrection, we should start with the cosmology that says heaven and earth are meant to overlap and interlock. And we humans are supposed to be standing at the dangerous place where that happens. We should start with the eschatology that says that the present age has somehow been invaded, is that the right word? By the long promised age to come. And that we humans are once more called to live and work at the very place where those tectonic plates are grinding against one another. That's why it's so dangerous. That's why we need to pray for one another as we do it. And this takes us back to Romans 8. When we stand at those two points of overlap, heaven and earth, present and future, we find ourselves groaning in prayer, often without knowing exactly what it is we ought to be praying for. I suspect that some of you feel exactly like that with your present political situation. And then realizing, with Paul to remind us, that exactly there and then the Spirit is groaning within us, and the Father is listening, and that in that process, we are being shaped according to the pattern of the beloved Son. So that the Christian life of prayer and sacrament draws together all other obligations and vocations and gives them new depth and focus. And at the same time, that rhythm of life, of standing where heaven and earth overlap, where present and future bump into one another, flows out into the world of service service to the poor and desolate, for whom the whole scripture, from the Torah and Psalms to Jesus and Revelation, has special concern. Matthew 25, learning to meet Jesus himself in the faces of the poor is one lesson among many which belong exactly here. To conclude, 
could say much more. Let me just re-emphasize two things from creation and justice. I've said this here and there, but I'm just going to say it briefly. If we believe that at the end God will put all things right, will do justice in that positive, creative, healing, restorative sense, and if we believe that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he did exactly that, close up and personal, in the one human being who represented and stood in for everyone else, then we cannot hold back from the imperative to do justice in this full sense at every opportunity. In our, we must, in the power of the Spirit, we must name and shame the injustices that are still rampant and we must work for their abolition. And we must take care that in our personal lives, particularly in the lives of our churches, injustice is rooted out. Only if we are doing this will it make any sense to preach and teach about God's new creation, about the way in which Jesus' resurrection resonates out into the renewal, the putting right of creation, justice, and then creation itself, God making a beautiful world. Well, beauty. If we believe that God made a beautiful world, which has been spoiled in so many ways, but which still resonates with his love and power. And if we believe that in Jesus, God has done the most beautiful thing imaginable, why else would so many artists and musicians devote their best efforts to setting it forth for our awe and contemplation? Then we must make sure as far as we can in our churches and our personal lives and in the wider communities where we have influence, we are working to foster and celebrate art and music and dance and drama and poetry, sculpture, whatever else we can. Because if the church is colluding with ugliness, don't talk to me about modern hymns. If the church is not recognizing and celebrating and giving opportunities for the many artistic gifts of its many members, then we shouldn't be surprised if people find it hard to believe us when we say that Jesus' resurrection has launched a new world in which creation is being renewed until the earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal. Justice and beauty, resurrection, point the way. By the power of the Spirit, our calling is to be resurrection people looking back to Jesus himself and his victory, and under his guidance and commission, bringing true signs of renewal into his creation today and every day.